Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Okay, well, reports of my death were greatly exaggerated. I was wishing for it at times, but managed to survive. We have several announcements that uh, y'all need to start paying attention to. The first one is one of great, uh, great significance and importance, and that is that we've got the pastors' conference coming up on March 19th to 21st. That's less than two months from now, so we have to start gearing up for that and thinking in terms of that. And we've had uh, quite a few people. Uh, send in requests that, if possible, they would like to uh, stay with the host family. So if you are able to put up uh, an individual or a couple to help alleviate their, uh, their expenses in coming to the conference, then please contact uh, Connie Balthrop and let her know. We have, at this point, we have a lot more requests than we have uh, rooms available. Also with that, there needs to be some understanding that they're, they've got to rent a car and get transportation, or as a host family, uh, you can provide transportation for them. So you need to let, let Connie know, and we'll work out all of those arrangements. Secondly, we have a family night coming up on Saturday night, February the 24th. And what time is that going to be? Does anybody know? What time do we usually have those, like 5 o'clock? Usually that's what we do, 5 or 5.30. I'll let you know. I'll talk to Mark and find out. Don Barber, who's the uh, executive director of Campanile, will be here that night, and they're going to be giving us a presentation on Campanile. So if you've got kids or grandkids, or I mean, they have things for everybody from seniors all the way down. And for many of us who grew up going to Campanile, and as we get older and older, they continue to add more camps because there are some of us who just never outgrew going to camp. I mean, it doesn't matter how, how old you get. So um, so that's the family night. The congregational meeting, our annual congregational meeting, will be held immediately following the wor- Sunday morning worship service on Sunday, February the 25th. And we encourage anyone, everyone to come whether you're a member or not, because we're going to be talking about future plans for uh, where we're going to go after we outgrow this space and what we're going to do. So that will be on uh, uh, Sunday, the 25th of February. And then the last announcement is that this afternoon, uh, Margaret Ann Rutherford, who's been on our prayer list and has been suffering with Alzheimer's for about five or six years, uh, went to be with the Lord. And so her family is all made up of believers. She got on doctrine back uh, in the early 60s and was just a bulwark of uh, faith. And I used to really enjoy calling her up back in the late 90s and 2000 before the Alzheimer's set in, and we'd have great discussions on the phone. But the uh, funeral arrangements haven't been finalized yet. They're pending, but it will probably be Monday, but we'll send out an announcement on that. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. 
Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9. If necessary, make sure you're ready to focus, concentrate on God's word this evening. Let's pray. Father, we're indeed grateful that we have your word, that down through the centuries you not only revealed yourself to us, but through the prophets of the Old Testament, apostles in the New Testament, your revelation was written down and scripturated, the canon was recognized in your sovereignty, you have preserved it down through the generations, and today we have our very own uh, copies of the sufficient uh, revelation that you have given us. Father, let us not take these truths lightly. Let us realize what a tremendous privilege it is, for there may come a time in our own lives when we do not have uh, easy access to the teaching of your word. And now is the time to store this in our souls that we might be prepared for times of testing that come in the future. We pray that as we study your word this evening that we can be focused and concentrate on what we study and that as we go through these things, your plan for our spiritual life becomes more clear to us and that through God the Holy Spirit, your word will challenge us and motivate us to greater endurance. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're about to wrap up this one paragraph in Hebrews 6 that we have been studying for, uh, well, time-wise, it's been over a month, but then I was gone to Kiev for uh, three weeks there that we missed out on. So we're in Hebrews chapter 6, and we're in that paragraph from 9 through 12 that sets us, the uh, right of Hebrews is at this point now where he's setting us up to go back to a discussion of uh, Melchizedek, which is where the chapter ends, uh, getting ready to go into the next section. So we're uh, going to start working on that transition before long. Now just to review in this in chapter 6 verse 9 the writer says that we can have confidence that despite failure no matter how much failure there's been God's grace always provides for recovery. He says we are confident beloved of better things concerning you things that accompany salvation and as I pointed out that has its future orientation. I almost feel like a broken record saying this every time we start, but we have to keep coming back to this context. The focus here is on the future. We talk about salvation, soterion as phase three, glorification. I'm going to keep the uh, editors in the back busy tonight because I still have this hacking cough, so they're going to have a tough time editing out the uh, the lesson afterwards. It's not a tape anymore, but you know what I mean. Uh, We have this emphasis on hope in the passage, which again is a confident expectation, uh, future orientation, and then the the emphasis on inheritance when we get to verse 12. So the whole focus here is to get the readers to think not in terms of just the day-to-day struggle of living the Christian life or just living life, but to focus on the fact that we have a future destiny and that we are in that training period that God is preparing us 
for that future destiny and not to give up, become weary. This is a major theme all the way through the book of Hebrews, not to give up, become weary, fall by the wayside, fall short of grace, various other terms that the writer uses. So in the second statement in this paragraph, the writer reminds the readers that God's justice doesn't forget, neglect, or overlook that which has already been accomplished in the power of God the Holy Spirit, but not to just rest on their laurels or not to think that, well, we did some good, so now let's go um, and uh, not focus on spiritual growth. And then in verses 11 and 12, he uh, encourages them to press on with continued uh, diligence that the believer, he says, is to persevere in light of that future expectation, that full assurance of hope until the end, until the end of this life. Don't fall by the wayside, not because you'll lose your salvation, as the Arminians teach, or not because it'll show that you weren't a true believer, as the Lordship Salvation people believe, but because there is there is a threat of a loss of reward, not that which has already been accomplished in the Holy Spirit, but that which is yet to be accomplished by means of the Holy Spirit. So we are to persevere in light of that future expectation, to persevere in faith and patience. Key word here, because patience is going to be picked up again when we get down into verse 15. We'll have the verb form, and that will be picked up again to realize a full inheritance and the idea of inheritance is again uh, picked up in relationship to the word promise because in verse 12 we are reminded that we are to uh, persevere as those and imitate those who went before uh, who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now I want you to notice something in your Bibles look at verse 12 and the last word probably is promises. And then if you look at verse 13, we read, For when God made a, what? A promise to Abraham. So you can connect the dots there. And then if you look at verse 15, we read, So after he had patiently endured, he obtained, what? The promise. So connect the dot again. And then in verse 17, we read, Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, the immutability of his counsel. So four times... In about six verses, we have a reference to the word promise. Now, where do you get a promise? You get a promise because somebody makes a declaration, a verbal declaration, of what they're going to do. And they are going to be faithful to that. And that's a sub-theme in this whole section, is the faithfulness of God to fulfill His promise. But I don't want to get off on that right now. I just want you to think about the concept of a promise. A promise is a verbal declaration. Now, think with me. We go all the way back to the first two verses of Hebrews. And what did the first two verses of Hebrews say? After God spoke in various ways and various manners in times past by means of the prophets, He has now spoken by means of His Son. It's this idea of God speaking which uh, entails an obligation on the hearer to respond positively to that revelation that God speaking is not just some academic articulation that we can sit there and study and see oh isn't that interesting let's try to understand all the uh, nuances and all the innuendos of what God has said 
but it entails an expectation of obedience and application. And all I've pointed this out all through Hebrews is you constantly have these references to, in one way or another to God making a verbal statement. And so this, again, is a, a major theme throughout the book of Hebrews that God speaks in some way, and this entails a certain response, necessitates a certain response on the part of the hearer. So we come to verse 12, and the emphasis here is on imitation. In verse 12, this is where we stopped the last two or three times. I've been covering five things that made these Old Testament heroes, and in addition, we can say now, the New Testament apostles, such great mature believers. It's not because they had something that you and I don't have. It's not because they were made of different flesh. It's not because somehow God gave them something that he didn't give uh, you and me. He has given them the same assets that you and I have. The difference is that what they do with their volition is different from what you and I often do with our volition. So in verse 12, the writer says, Uh, that they are not to become sluggish, but they are to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, the reason you're to imitate these leaders is not in their flesh. Okay, it's not in their their humanity, in in their failures, but in their walk with the Lord. And they are set up throughout all of the... um, Throughout the rest of Hebrews, we get to Hebrews chapter 11, and there's just this entire listing of Old Testament saints who by faith accomplished certain things and are praised by God for what they did in those verses. Now, this word imitate is the Greek word mimetes, which means to mimic, to imitate, to follow in the pattern of someone. Ultimately, they all are imitating the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.16 when you put it together with 1 Corinthians 11.1. He says, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. That's the focal point. Don't imitate Paul in his failures, but imitate Paul in that which made him the great apostle, the great believer that he was. First uh, Thessalonians 1.6, he praises the Thessalonians because they became imitators of us, that is, Timothy and Titus and the growing and advancing believers that were in uh, the apostles' entourage. First uh, Thessalonians 2.14, for you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea in that you also endured the same sufferings at the hand of your countrymen. So he's picking out those positive attributes of other believers and other churches where they are applying the word and saying, imitate those, follow in their footsteps, follow in their example. And he says that they were to imitate those who through faith and patience, this is a key word, makrothemia, which literally is a compound word in the Greek, makros meaning long, like macro, that's where we get our word macro as opposed to micro, large, uh, and thumia meaning anger, so it means to be long-suffering, to be uh, forbearing, to have self-restraint, not to be uh, impatient, 
but to wait on the Lord. This uh, James 5.17 reminds us that Elijah was a man of like nature as we are. He wasn't any different. He didn't have something in his makeup that you and I don't have. In fact, we have more than Elijah. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have the filling of the Holy Spirit. We have the uh, a completed canon of Scripture. We have all of the assets that, that belong to every believer in Jesus Christ. And so just as Elijah persevered, that's the point of this whole illustration in James 5.17 was Elijah's endurance and perseverance. That's the, the whole theme from James 5.7 all the way down to the end of the chapter is to close out on the importance of perseverance and endurance. So we ask the question, what made them different? Why were they different? In what ways did they exercise their volition that you and I can imitate? And the first point that I made was that in their faith, they had the, the will, the gumption, the guts to believe God and to take up the challenge to walk by faith and not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5.7 This is a problem with too many believers today. They are so distracted by the details of life, by the everyday pressures of life, by the materialism that is driven as part of our culture, by all of the different uh, pressures that are brought to bear in the career, in family, friends, all the different things that we lose sight of the real focus and purpose of why God called us to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter whether you're in professional Christian service or whether you are uh, just everyday Joe Sixpack. Anybody can serve the Lord Jesus Christ in whatever area uh, you find yourself, whether you are uh, working for a large corporation as an executive or whether you're uh, working for the city in uh, some sort of basic government job or whatever it may be, wherever you are, that's your missionary responsibility where you can serve the Lord. You can also serve the Lord in relationship to the local church. You can serve the Lord in relationship to praying for and financially helping missionaries. There are just an untold number of ways that every one of us can be involved in different areas of Christian service. It's going to differ from person to person simply because uh, you have different spiritual gifts. Every person has uh, different spiritual gifts. They may have one or more uh, spiritual gifts and how they are uh, given to you according to the grace of God and whatever measure they're given to you is going to be different from somebody else and whatever your particular natural talents and abilities are are going to be different from somebody else. But the bottom line is that we have to be willing to take up that challenge to walk by faith and not by sight where the Word of God is more real to us than circumstances, than people's opinions, than the pressures of day-to-day -day life than the various details of life that, that surround us. As a result of their walking by faith and not by sight, they had a biblical view of reality. This radically transformed their norms and standards. They were living in this world as if they were from somewhere else. They recognized that their citizenship was in heaven, it wasn't here on earth, and that they had a genuine grasp of the how transitory life was 
right now in, in this physical plane. That this was just a drop in the bucket compared to, to eternity. And so this revolutionized their core values. So that rather than having the values of the culture around them, they had uh, a focus on the eternal virtues. As I pointed out last time, the difference between values and virtue. Values come out of culture, or what the Bible calls the world system. Values are transitory. Values are relative. Values are personal preferences. But virtues are eternal absolutes that are grounded in the Word of God. Values are something that everybody has. Virtues are something that we are to strive for. They are perfections that we are to grow in the direction of. And the three cardinal virtues, biblically, are faith, hope, and love, each of which is mentioned in this particular passage. We talk about their work and labor of love in verse 10, the full assurance of hope in verse 11, and that they are to imitate those who through faith and patience uh, inherit the promises. So faith, hope, and love are each mentioned in this passage. So they were willing to be radically submitted to the plan of God and to be servants of God, servants of Christ. And we went through these various passages last week, uh, Deuteronomy 6.13, that we are called to serve God. Uh, Romans 12.1, that our life is to be a, this is uh, the word that's used here, uh, latreia is a word that sometimes is translated worship. And we're going to study this in our study on worship on Sunday morning as we're going through Revelation 4. This doesn't have to do with corporate worship. It has to do with, with personal worship, that how our life becomes a personal uh, sacrifice to God as we serve Him rather than serving our own desires, our own goals, our own objectives. We put God's plan first. This is one of the most uh, difficult things for anyone to, uh, to, to apply is that we are to be radically oriented to the plan of God, not to our own desires, our own agenda, and most people spend most of their life trying to figure out which master they're going to serve, which is what Jesus emphasizes um, in several passages in the Gospels. Matthew twenty twenty eight. He is the Son of Man. He came to, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He said, but he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And Luke sixteen thirteen. No servant can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other or you'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and mammon. And yet, see, this is what James talks about in James 1 as the two-souled or double-minded individual who can't decide where his priorities are. And this is why most Christians fail in the spiritual life, is they just can't crack this the priority issue and making the Word of God the central issue in their life, that nothing else matters except knowing the Word of God and applying it. And it's not just knowing the Word of God academically. It's knowing the Word of God as the way to have a rich relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ because we think as He thinks. Uh, Acts twenty eighteen through 18 through 21 uh, Paul gives an illustration of what this meant in terms of his role as an apostle. 
There in verse 18 we read, When they had come to him, he said to them, quote, You know from the first day that I came to Asia. Notice how he can use himself as an example. You know from the very beginning when I came to Asia, and we know where Asia is because we've looked at that map till we're all sick of it in uh, Sunday morning and the seven letters to seven churches, Asia Minor. This isn't talking about China. This is talking about the Roman province of Asia in eastern Turkey. Uh, the first day I came to Asia, which was actually when we came to Ephesus, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord. See, that's our priority is to serve the Lord. We're not serving other people. This is the same mentality that Paul talks about in Colossians 3, 18 and following. He talks about that when you're working, you do your job as unto the Lord. You're not the human master that you're serving, but you're actually serving the Lord in that position. So Paul says, serving the Lord with all humility. And he says, with many tears and trials, what happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. And over in Second Corinthians, he details just this whole litany of things he had to go through in ministry. He was shipwrecked, and he was hungry, and he was thrown in jail, and he was beaten, and all these different things that he put up with. And for many people, they'd say, you know, if I had to put up with all of that, then I would just, you know, go find something else to do. I wouldn't be involved. I'd take that as a sign that God wanted me to do something else. You know, that must not be God's will for me to, to be involved in ministry if I'm going to get thrown in jail and beaten and shipwrecked and have to go through all of this. So he talks about this as part of humility, which is authority orientation to God. Verse 20 says, How I kept back nothing that was helpful. He was completely oriented. Everything in his life focused on that one mission, which was to communicate the gospel and to teach believers uh, how to live. I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. So these two verses explain what he means in verse 19 by serving the Lord with all humility. It is fulfilling his mission as an apostle in relation to his spiritual gift and in relationship to God's plan for his life. Now in 1 Corinthians 4, 1, he gives us another illustration of what it means to be a servant. What it means to be a servant is not um, that you go out and that, uh, like some of these uh, people that we see on television or whatever, where, where it's all about them and it's all about their ministry and what God, what, you know, what, they'll talk about what God's doing through them, but it's all about them. And it's all about this uh, institution that they're developing. Paul says, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ. It's not about Paul. It wasn't about Timothy. It wasn't about Barnabas. It wasn't about Luke or Matthew. It was always only about the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, we are to be considered as servants of Christ and stewards, that is, those who were responsible for the communication of the mysteries of God, that is, the mystery doctrine that hadn't been revealed yet. Now, this word for servant is one of the uh, one of those picturesque words that is picked up in Koine Greek and used several times in Scripture to describe the disciples and those who are 
involved in, in any kind of ministry, whether it's profession. I remember Paul many times went places and he uh, was supported by his own hand by, by tent making. Now that doesn't mean I don't, I don't think that Paul actually sat down too much with an, you know you picture him sitting there with the canvas uh, across his legs and sewing. He had a business when he was tent making in in Corinth. They were preparing for the the Olympic Games that would have been conducted while he was there, and there would have been as many as fifty or sixty thousand people who would have come into Corinth from out of town, and so they were constructing the awnings and the tents for all these people that would come. He was running, he was a good capitalist. He had a good business. But this word for servant is the Greek word uh, huperites, and it literally means an under rower. That's its etymological derivation. It was used by the Koine period to describe someone who was a subordinate, a servant, an attendant, an, a general assistant, someone who was an aide-de-camp to a general, perhaps. That means it, they were never to be seen, You know, sort of like that old saying about kids that aren't supposed to be seen or heard. They weren't supposed to be seen, heard, or nobody was supposed to pay attention to them, but they were working and doing most of the uh, hard work and difficult work, but it was all about the person who was in charge and the person who was in authority. All the attention and honor and glory went to the person they worked for and not to this person. This person is, is the one who does all the work behind the scenes and nobody even knows they're there. Uh, the, uh, I was talking about the etymological derivation of this. It comes from the use with the trireme. The trireme was a... Actually, they, they think that it was developed by the Phoenicians, and of course the Phoenicians had a certain relationship uh, to the Greeks, but the Greeks really developed it as an ancient... Uh, weapon and it was uh, designed to ram and of course if you want to ram another ship in naval warfare uh, the best thing that you can have going for you is momentum and so rather than having all of the rowers on the same level they had three decks of rowers and of course the guy who's down on the lowest level is the huperetes that was the term that was used to describe that guy down in the very pits. If you saw the movie um, Ben-Hur, and if you watch that, if you're young and you don't remember that, you need to watch it. It's a good good movie. But that's a, that, a galley slave. That's the term that Paul is using to describe himself. He is somebody who is, in his in the divine viewpoint approach, is basically inconsequential. It's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ said that if he wanted to, he could make the the stones cry out to praise him. You know, God doesn't need pastors. He doesn't need any of us to do anything. It is a tremendous privilege that we have to serve him and to just participate in that ministry. It's not about me. It's not about any other pastor. It's all the focus is always on the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. So Paul views himself with a complete lack of pride. He's not in this for personal recognition. He's not in this for anything other than just serving the Lord and being willing to hear that praise at the end of life, well done, good and faithful servant. 
And incidentally, we're no better than Paul. Paul was beaten. Paul was in prison. Paul did, did everything right, but he was beaten and imprisoned, and he had to go through a lot of suffering because that's the process God uses to teach us. And as long as we're in this cosmic system, we're always going to have a target on our backside in the angelic conflict. And none of us are going to be able to escape that. And the only way we can keep the focus in the midst of all of this hostility around us is to be completely and radically oriented to the plan of God and recognize that our sole purpose is to serve Him. Now, the third characteristic that we find of Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles was that they had a passion for giving the gospel to unbelievers. It was a desire to give the gospel to anyone, anytime, anywhere. Now, what do I mean by passion? I don't mean it was some sort of emotional kick. It was uh, emotion-driven, although the word passion has that as a primary meaning. What I mean by passion is that they had a driving desire or devotion, a, 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 an all-encompassing interest and an, to energetically pursue a particular cause. They were completely sold out to achieving that goal and nothing was going to distract them from that goal. And this meant that they had a, an understanding of the realities of heaven and hell that are often lost today. It's sad, but in the last 25 years, it seems like the teaching about eternal condemnation and the reality of the lake of fire has all but disappeared from many churches. In fact, there are a number of evangelical theologians who have rejected the idea of eternal condemnation as not uh, being quite... um, uh, appropriate for a loving God. And I'm talking about some, some highly respected uh, evangelical theologians. It's just not politically correct, you might say, to th- talk about uh, eternal condemnation. But Paul and Luke and Matthew and these men in the New Testament understood that everybody they looked at was either on their way to heaven or on their way to hell, and they needed to hear the gospel that Jesus Christ died on the cross for them, and that was the only solution, and this was so real, so much more real to them than any other considerations in life that they just had this driving passion to give the gospel to people, and it takes us a while to get... Um, to get worked up on that. They understood the doctrine of ambassadorship. Second Corinthians five nineteen and 20, Paul says, that is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation, a recognition that if I don't tell these people, they may not hear. Now, obviously, if they're positive, God will bring somebody else along, but guess what? then you miss out on being a part of that blessing to give them the gospel. So Paul says, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. Hear that there is a, there is a passion in that term 
as if God were pleading through us. This isn't just some academic exercise, but a pleading with unbelievers, giving them the gospel. And so Paul concludes by saying that, by expressing it this way, we implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. Romans 1, uh, Rome, uh, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 9.22, he says that to the weak I became as weak that I may win the weak. I become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. In other words, he was willing to do whatever it took in terms of uh, adjusting in the uh, unimportant particulars so that he could present the gospel clearly to those who needed it. In Second Timothy two nine, he says, "For which I suffer trouble as an evil doer, even to the point of change." That doesn't mean he was an evil doer, but he is suffering trouble just as if he were a criminal, even to the point of being put in chains. But the word of God is not changed. In Romans one sixteen, he says, "For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also to the Greek." Fourth characteristic is they were totally submissive to the will of God. They put aside all self-interest and personal desire for God's plan. They exchanged their priorities for God's priorities. Acts 20, 24. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Fifth point. Knowing doctrine was the means to know Christ and serve Him. That was the focal point. As we're going to study when we get into worship on Sunday mornings, is that the what drives everything in the Christian life is knowledge of doctrine. It doesn't end there, though. That's the starting point. And so Philippians 3.8, as Paul has reflected upon all that he was as a Jew, that he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, he was of the tribe of Benjamin, and all the positive things he had uh, from a religious viewpoint, he concludes by saying that he counted it all to be loss. He said, I count all things loss, for the excellence, that is, in light of the excellence, the, su- the superiority of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, his reputation, everything that he had achieved uh, as he went through rabbinical training, all of the recognition that he had. Paul is probably the greatest student that Gamaliel ever had. And yet he gave it up. He could have been the greatest rabbi of all time, and he gave all of that up, and counted it as rubbish, which is such a pusillanimous translation of the Greek. The Greek word is skubala, which is uh, dung, to put it politely. He just counts all of it to be as worthless as anything that could possibly be, that he might gain Christ. Not just a knowledge about Christ, but gain Christ, and be found in him. Now this, verses 8 and 9, is talking about his salvation. Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Understanding the doctrine of imputation. I can't become righteous on my own. I can only get it through 
uh, imputation from Christ, the righteousness which is from God by means of faith. That, see, getting saved isn't the end. As Paul said in Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Here he says that I received the righteousness of God by faith in order that there was a purpose that I may know three things. That I may know Him. And the only way we can know Christ is through the Word. That I may know Him. Number one. Number two, know the power of His resurrection. That is the power of God the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. That I may know Him, the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings. Now, that takes us back to a passage that we've covered a few times in here when we talk about inheritance. In Romans chapter 8, we have the, Paul talking about being a joint heir, or excuse me, being an heir of God and then a joint heir of Christ in Romans eight seventeen. And we're joint heirs of Christ if we suffer with Him. So his focus here, when he talks about the fellowship of his sufferings, is talking about that second category of inheritance where we go through uh, suffering as part of our spiritual growth, and that qualifies us for joint heirship with Christ. And then he concludes in Philippians 3.11, since it is a... Verse 11 is an, begins with an idiomatic statement in the Greek, which some translations uh, translate with an if, as if it's uh, if I might, as if Paul's not certain. But he is certain, and it is a certain kind of construction that indicates a certainty, since I will. He's focused on the future. He knows that he will attain to the resurrection it's a Greek word, ex anastasis, which has, it's really a focus on the rapture. Now, some, some of you may have heard, uh, heard it said, when it's translated if, it's like Paul is thinking, well, maybe I'll be part of the rapture, maybe I won't. Now, whether you're dead or alive, you will be part of the rapture. Right? First Thessalonians 4. Dead in Christ will rise first, and we were alive and caught up together to be with the Lord. We're all going up in the rapture. So he's not questioning whether or not he'll be part of the rapture, that he might be part of the rapture generation. He is saying that since he will be part of the resurrection of the dead, which leads to the judgment seat of Christ and evaluation, he wants to make sure his priorities are focused on knowing him, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his suffering, so that he will be ready for the judgment seat of Christ because he's going to be part of the resurrection of the dead. That would be the first, uh, the first resurrection. So these are the five areas that distinguish these great Old Testament saints and New Testament believers. Now let's go back to our passage in uh, Ephesians 6.12 says that you do not become sluggish, which he's already accused them of back in chapter 5, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So let's stop and just review for a minute this concept of inheritance. Because he's looking at these Old Testament saints, and he says, imitate them. They're the ones who inherit the promise. Now he's going to give us one illustration, and that's going to be Abraham. 
He's talked about Abraham briefly earlier. He's going to talk about Abraham even more and expand this when we get into uh, Hebrews chapter 11. But here he is talking about inheriting the promises, and inheritance always throws our attention to the judgment seat of Christ, which is where we will receive rewards at, uh, for gold, silver, precious stones that's produced under the filling of the Spirit, or uh, wood, hay, and straw, in which case our works are burned up. So let's just review uh, four things about inheritance. Uh, three forms of this word appear in Hebrews. The root that's found here in 6.12 is the verb kleronomeo. Now here, it's an articular participle. Now the difference between whether it has the article or not has to do with whether it's used as a noun or as an adverb. If it's articular, it's used like a noun, and here it should be handled as a relative, uh, relative clause. Uh, those who, as it's translated in the, in the uh, New King James here, those who, through faith and patience, are inheriting. It's a present tense. It almost has a future sense. Those who will inherit. There is a future nuance at times to the present tense, and so it may be a uh, futuristic present here that because of our through faith and patience, they will inherit the promises. It's yet future. So we have the verb, as it's used here, is used 18 times in the New Testament. And four times the verb is used in the book of Hebrews. It's used in Hebrews 1.4 in relationship to Jesus Christ as the one who inherited a better name than the angels. And it's used in 1.14 to refer to uh, advancing believers who will inherit salvation. It's used in 6.12, our passage, it's used in 12.17 in relationship to Esau's desire to inherit the blessing. The noun form of this verb is kleronomia, and it's the noun form indicating the, what it, that which is inherited, the inheritance or the property itself, the possession. Uh, kleronomia is a word that's used 14 times in the New Testament. It's used two times in Hebrews. It's used in Hebrews 9.15 to refer to the promise of our eternal inheritance. And it's used in Hebrews 11.8 in relationship to Abraham. But there it refers to the land he would receive as an inheritance. Now, the promise here is not that, that we find in Hebrews uh, 6.12 uh, is not related to the land promise, but the seed promise. So we have to make that distinction. In Hebrews 11.8, it's a reference to the promise of the land. And then third form of the word that's used is the noun indicating the designated recipient, that is the heir. And that's uh, the form kleronomos. Kleronomos is used 15 times in the New Testament and three times in Hebrews. In 1-2, it is used of Christ, who God the Father appointed heir of all things. In Hebrews 6-17, which is coming up in our study here of chapter 6, it refers to the heirs of the promise. And that refers to, um, refers to believers, church-age believers. In Hebrews 11-7, it refers to Noah as an heir of righteousness because of his obedience to God. So that would be experiential 
righteousness. So what we find here is that inheritance is used, or one form of the word or another, is used nine times in the book of Hebrews. Now, whenever you have a word of this significance that you use more than one or two times in a book, that tells you that it's an important theme in that book. And even though uh, you don't always have inheritance mentioned, you have other words associated with that, so that this is a major focus in the book of Hebrews, that they are to be ready to receive their inheritance. Now, what exactly is an inheritance? And we've gone through some of this before, that a lot of people think that the word inherent, inherit has the idea, especially when it's used of inheriting the kingdom, that it has to do with just gaining entrance into heaven, gaining eternal life. But it doesn't mean that. Uh, inheritance is, as we'll see in a second, is a reward for work. Salvation is a free gift. The core semantic meaning for inherit is the idea of possession, the idea of property, the idea of ownership. When we think about inheritance, we often think of it in our culture as something related to what happens when someone dies. Now, there's a number of passages where that's true, but the idea of gaining something on the death of another is a secondary idea. It's not the core semantic meaning. It's a secondary idea in, um, in Greek culture. You could be the heir of something without anyone having died, and we find that usage uh, in the Scripture. For example, in Hebrews 11.8, which I referred to a minute ago, we read, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. Now, was Abraham supposed to receive it as an inheritance when somebody died? No. See, it's a, simply the idea of possession, or which he would receive as his, as his uh, possession, as his property. Hebrews 1-2, we read that God has in these last days spoken to us by a son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. Now, does somebody have to die in order for Jesus Christ to gain the property? No. no, we're not talking about the death of Christ. We're talking about somebody dying to bequeath the, the, uh, all things to Jesus. No, the Father doesn't have to die so Jesus can inherit. It is simply uh, a word for ownership of property. So Jesus is appointed the heir, the owner of all things. So the core value of inherit is the idea of possession, property, or ownership. Now, the third idea in inheritance is in relationship to Abraham. In relationship to Abraham, it can be related to either the land promise, as we just saw in Hebrews 11.8, or it can be related to the seed promise. But it's always related to the idea of the divine promise, that God has obligated himself to bring something about for Abraham. A couple of important passages on this are found in Galatians chapter 3, verse 18, and also Romans 4. Galatians 3.18 we read, and 3.18 has a context where Paul is just, uh, has, has just been 
uh, very hard on the Galatians because they've been trying to live the Christian life on the basis of the law. So he's building this contrast between the ineffectuality of the law because it was temporary and the value of the eternal promises given to Abraham. So he concludes that if the inheritance is of the law, then it would no longer be a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. That's the conclusion of his argument. Since God gave it to Abraham by promise, not by the law, then we achieve the promise, the blessing, by uh, grace and not by law. So this only point I'm making here is that the concept of inheritance here is related to the divine promise. It's that way in Romans 4:13 and 14 as well. That's a great chapter on justification by faith alone. And in his discussion of justification by faith, uh, Paul uses Abraham as the benchmark example, going back to Genesis 15, 7. In verse 13 he says, For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. It was based on grace. Righteousness by means of faith, not work. So the promise to Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant was grace based, not based on a condition. It was an unconditional covenant. Verse 14. For those who are of the law are heirs, then faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Now, the point that I'm making here is simply this, that inheritance in relationship to Abraham is always related to this idea of promise. That's exactly what we're going to see in verses 13 through 15. I've had you circle those words for promise in these verses. Verse 12, we have promise. Verse 13, we have promise. Verse 15, we have promise. Verse 17, we have promise. The whole focus here is on the promise of God, that God stands behind the promise. It's his character. It's his integrity that guarantees that promise. So the third point related to inheritance was simply that uh, in relationship to Abraham, it's related to promise, either the land promise or the promise of the seed. Fourth, Inheritance is related to rewards for what is earned for service, whereas salvation is a free gift. And Paul makes this statement in Colossians chapter 3, verse 24. Now, Colossians 3.23 talks about the fact that we are to, that servants are to serve their masters, not as eye-pleasers, but as unto the Lord, because they know that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Now that gives you a whole new doctrine of work. Going to work tomorrow morning, you know that you're at work tomorrow morning, that you're there, whoever your boss is, no matter how curmudgeonly he is or how awful it is or whatever the circumstances are, you're there not to serve them, but to serve the Lord. And you will receive the reward of the inheritance from the Lord, for you serve the Lord Christ in your job. You don't have to be a missionary or a pastor or a seminary professor or in some sort of professional Christian work. This is everybody gets included uh, in this in this category. Everybody is serving the Lord at your job, whatever it is. 
no matter how menial it may be, no matter how um, how <clears throat> extensive the responsibilities, whatever it is, you are actually uh, serving the Lord. Okay, let's look at our passage. Well, we're almost done, and I don't want to get into the next verse and have to stop in four minutes, so we'll stop a couple of minutes early. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be challenged once again with the reality of our future inheritance, that we are destined to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a destiny to rule as kings and priests in the millennial kingdom and to serve the Lord in many magnificent ways. And that future service will be based upon the present service and our the capacity that is developed through our spiritual growth during this time on the earth. None of us knows how long we have. It may be a couple of more days. It may be several more decades. But this is the time that you have given us, and this is why you, the Apostle Paul challenged the Ephesians to redeem the time because the, uh, the days are evil. We need to utilize the time for the eternal purposes of your plan. We need to be reminded of the qualities evident in the Old Testament prophets, the great heroes of the faith, as well as New Testament apostles, and that we might emulate them as they give a human picture for us of the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we be responsive to this challenge. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.